it's a great pleasure to to be at an interdisciplinary workshop and to see old students, mm -hmm. old friends. And I should say, I'm very uh, I'm very admiring of the attempt to be interdisciplinary. Three years ago, in collaboration with an international lawyer and a philosopher, we decided to create the. Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. So we're living <laughs> interdisciplinarity every day. Um, and I have to say, it's absolutely fantastic if you can get the momentum and continue to have discussions like this. But it does require time and a willingness to, to listen to how different things are conceived. We did a panel on Libya on um, May the 19th with the lawyer who's Dapo Akande, who works on the laws of war and myself and David Roden, and it was, it was fascinating to hear my two colleagues, who I know very well, discuss the issue um, in ways that aren't quite the same as, yeah. as I would. So um, we're talking a little bit about definitions, and I, my comments come with the health warning that I'm a political scientist. So I come at um, the issue of humanitarian intervention from that perspective. Although... Um, in my own work, I've always um, been very interested in the historical roots of current um, norms and, in some cases, law, and also the intersection with law. So, for example, I've just actually finished editing a book on classical thinkers and intervention, mm -hmm. um, where we look at Mill and Kant and Mazzini and Burke and a number of thinkers, um, and Grotius and others who were grappling with ideas of intervention from a moral, political, and legal perspective. Um, and it's interesting that while you may not find the phrase humanitarian intervention in their works, and you know we all need to be aware of the Skinner um, edict to not read back meaning, there is nonetheless um, discussion of rescue of innocence if you think about uh, Victoria, um, or in Grotius's case, um, actions to protect persecuted populations. So I think that's a, a legacy that we may want to think about um, in some of our papers. Of course, also in, in the discipline of international relations, you have the period of the 19th century, which is interesting from two perspectives. One, that you have the very particular practice of saving foreign nationals arise, um, which took on the narrow term humanitarian intervention. And for much of the late 19th century and early 20th century, that's what lawyers believed humanitarian intervention was. By the same token, you did have practice developing of what we might in the 21st century recognize as humanitarian intervention, actions to protect persecuted minorities. Again, predominantly Christian, but not in all cases. Um, there's, an interest, there's a couple of interesting books on this from politics which, which draw this out. One, I think more controversially, Gary Bass's book, um, is it Freedom's Battle? Is that the, mm -hmm. the Freedom's yeah. Battle, where he looks at, I think he's wanting to develop an argument in favor of humanitarian intervention, but also Martha Finnemore's book, which looks at, uh, to Nina's point, the rise of humanitarian ideas and rationale. But if we think about the sort of post-1945 period and how humanitarian intervention has been conceived in law and practice, um, there is a, 
there is a particular definition which has arisen, and and in my own work, I grappled with that, particularly in the in the introduction to the to the edited book on humanitarian intervention and international relations. On the one hand, you have attempts by international lawyers to narrow this phenomenon to something very, very specific. Um, and that is action without the consent of the host state, firstly, of a military nature, and thirdly, unilateral. And by unilateral, I don't mean it necessarily has to be only one state engaging in it, but not authorized by the UN Security Council. The reason for that third being that actions that are authorized by the UN Security Council under Chapter 7 are considered by lawyers to be acts of collective security. They may have a rationale um, that humanitarian crises or threats to civilians constitute a threat to international peace and security, but they're conceived by international lawyers as acts of collective security. Now, my view is that that's very helpful from a legal standpoint, but that it doesn't help us as analysts to get at a category of activity that's broader than that. So I diverge from that definition um, in a couple of ways. One, um, I recognize that the consent of the host state is something very tricky to demand. Uh, sorry, the non-consent of the host state is something very tricky to demand. Because in certain cases, consent will exist, but it will be coerced um, in some significant ways. Or you may have um, missions evolve from ones which were peacekeeping missions where there was consent for the original placement of forces, as in Bosnia, but you have a late stage of the mission which doesn't involve consent. So I think it's, while playing around with the notion of whether there's consent or not is incredibly important analytically, that if we want to examine a body of cases, we may want to recognize that that strict requirement of no host, station, no host nation consent is actually quite tricky to demand. Now I think, as a footnote, Libya is very interesting here. Because in my reading, this is actually the very first time the Security Council has authorized the use of force for humanitarian purposes without the consent of the host state. Now, a couple of you may be thinking, what about Somalia? What about East Timor? What about Rwanda? I think in the first case in Somalia, there's a very good argument to be made that there wasn't actually an agent that could give consent, a coherent agent that could give consent. And in the latter two cases, you have um, consent technically achieved. Um, in the case of East Timor, the Indonesian government consenting to the Australian-led action in 1999, although I would argue heavily coerced by the threat of reneging on IMF loans. Um, and in the case of Operation Turquoise, again, you had, prior to that, a UN peacekeeping operation on the ground. So in my mind, Libya is actually quite significant because it is the first time you have... I mean, the, to put it another way, the Council's actions can be conceived as nothing other than 
coercive in the Libyan instance. That's just a footnote. So the one, the one piece of this I think we, we want to relax is consent, but you may not agree with me. That, that, that's just something I would like to argue. Um, the second is that we may not want to say that we only consider humanitarian interventions to be those that do not have Security Council authorization um, or the authorization of a regional body that then gets Security Council authorization. Because again, I think we would be taking our eyes off a series of cases where humanitarian justifications or humanitarian motives were the primary objectives of the mission. Um, and that is different from, say, an intervention um, for the purposes of, say, threats to peace and security which are related to civil war or even arguably the possession of weapons of mass destruction um, or other such cases. Now, this brings up the thorny issue of motives. Um, can we only call humanitarian interventions those which have a pure humanitarian motive? Two points here I think are worth um, raising. One is that there will be many cases where there are more than one motive at work. Um, and that's a reality in politics, and Richard is quite right, that we should be always um, in sort of E.H. Carr fashion interrogating what the motives really are. Uh, but you will have cases, I would argue East Timor is a good example, where you have a mix of humanitarian rationale and particular interests, in the case of Australia, reputational interests but also economic interests. I think Somalia, I would argue, is one of the hardest cases to say there were strong competing national interests. Um, I think humanitarian motives were primary. Um, whether or not they were realistic or carried out appropriately, we could debate. I think the other case where humanitarian motives are very dominant was the intervention at the end of the first Gulf War in 1991 to protect Kurds in northern Iraq. Now there you clearly had a series of considerations about the end of that conflict that were driving the U.S., but there is good evidence to suggest that the first Bush administration was highly influenced by humanitarian concerns. Partly they were reputational. You know, we just went to war to remove a regime and now we have massive humanitarian suffering. Surely we need to act in some way. But it's just to say that these motives are very difficult to disentangle. Now I find it interesting that when you talk to philosophers about this phenomenon of mixed motives, they're often very puzzled why in politics we tie ourselves in knots about this. Philosophers often say to me, well, in moral philosophy, we, we accept the phenomenon of mixed motives, that individuals act for a variety of reasons. So why are you so worried about having only one motive? Um, and I think it's an interesting point, but I do think it raises still the questioning of motives, um, the difference between motive and intent, and the importance of making sure um, that the intention 
is a humanitarian outcome, no matter what the variety of motives might be, that there's an intention to bring about a positive humanitarian outcome, and that that should dominate the way in which you conduct the operation. We should be very worried if the intent is perhaps not that. Um, now, you may think that's a false distinction, but I do think it can be, can be drawn out. Um, lastly, let me say a little bit about this issue of selectivity and consistency. Um, you'll often find in discussions of humanitarian intervention among those who are opposed to enshrining this notion as a legitimate practice, uh, two kinds of arguments. Actually, I should say three kinds of arguments. The first two, I think, are very powerful. The last one about consistency, I want to challenge. The first one is that we should be very wary about extending the number of, of legitimate exceptions to the ban on the use of force that exists in the UN Charter. That there's a very strong prudential argument in favor of saying that the use of force should be illegal as one's starting position. And that one only moves away from that if one is not a pacifist in conditions of self-defense and collective security. And that to begin to say there's a third category of um, humanitarian action is sort of opening the gate to numerous wars um, for ignoble purposes. I have a lot of sympathy for that argument. Um, I would simply say, though, that actually what we've seen, and you may disagree with me again, is not rampant interventionism. We've actually seen very little, comparatively, humanitarian intervention if you think of the number of cases of mass atrocities um, against populations. The second reason that's often given why we should be cautious, Richard alluded to from the, from the quote to my book about um, whether humanitarian outcomes actually result and the negative long-term consequences of intervention, that war and the use of force is extremely unpredictable. And there are authors who would argue, I think very compellingly, and, and um, Robert Jackson is an example of this, that the greatest threats to human life and human rights have occurred in the context of armed conflict. So be careful what you unleash. And I do think that that is a very powerful argument. The, the last argument about consistency and selectivity is we shouldn't condone this practice because we won't be able to do it everywhere. It will be practiced selectively. And this is the one I want to challenge a little bit. Um, but I find that when I do so, I manage to convince usually only a handful of people. But let me try anyway. Um, I should start by saying that selectivity is extremely damaging to legitimacy. So when you are seeking to develop support for a notion that in very extreme circumstances, and this would be my argument, very extreme circumstances, meaning imminent threat or the commission of mass atrocity crimes, not human rights violations on a, a more localized or lower level, if you want to make 
the case that in exceptional circumstances, um, force should be condoned as a last resort um, in those cases. You are confronting a very powerful norm, as Richard alluded to, um, the norm of territorial integrity and self-determination, that intervention is always disruptive of some very powerful norms, which in my view rest on some very powerful normative foundations. And actually, the current book I'm writing is trying to draw out what those normative justifications are. Because I find the proponents of humanitarian intervention tend to tar the opponents with a brush that says, all you're concerned about is your own regime security. You don't want this norm because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you. But I actually think there are some deeper arguments about self-determination and territorial integrity that need to be taken seriously, and notions of sovereign equality. And the selective practice of humanitarian intervention will make those arguments stronger and will harm the legitimacy of the principle. That being said, I do have some sympathy, and you'll be surprised to hear me say this, with Tony Blair's retort that just because you can't intervene everywhere doesn't mean you shouldn't intervene where you can. On the whole, I'm supportive of that statement, but I think we need to add a caveat to it. And that is that the reasons why you can't um, need to be very good reasons. And I would say there's one set of reasons which are good, and there's another set of reasons which are less good. So let me talk about the ones that are less good. The less good reasons why you can't, in my view, are ones about capability. You often heard in the context of Darfur, we can't act here because we're engaged elsewhere. And if you take humanitarian intervention seriously, or if you flip it around to the notion that there's a responsibility to act in these instances, then in my view you need to take responsibility seriously and you need to develop the capability to act in those very extreme circumstances. And there are many states and actors in international society today who are not doing that. Kok Chortan makes a very interesting argument that he says right now we have an imperfect responsibility to protect because it isn't allocated to any agent in particular and because many agents don't have the, the, the capability to act on it. And I want to make the provocative argument that if we're not going to develop the capability, then we shouldn't call it a responsibility. We should say it's something discretionary and that it's a right. Um, so that argument I find less good. The argument I find better is drawn from just war theorizing, and that is to say that the existence of these massive violations of human rights or their imminent commission only gives you right cause to act. It doesn't say you should act. There are a number of other considerations that need to come into play about proportionality, whether you can act in a way that's proportionate, about reasonable prospects of success, what kind of damage will you do in the course of intervening, um, proper authority, is this something that's being done 
by one state without the sanction of important um, regional neighbors or the international uh, community. Uh, those considerations are paramount. Now, if you consider those, I think some of the cases where we've seen selectivity have been, i.e., where there's been non-intervention, are less compelling. Um, and one of the ones, though, that in my mind may still fit that category, and, and I'll say this in, in, in closing, is Chechnya. And I think here one faces, as a decision maker, the very difficult calculation that while you might place very high value on the lives of Chechen civilians, the prospect of escalating a conflict with a very powerful state, i.e. Russia, might induce prudence. Now, you may say, ah, that's a political science to speaking, someone who's thinking about power, and to which I plead absolutely guilty. But uh, I, I, I just raise that as, as an example. My point is to say, I think we should very meticulously interrogate the reasons for selectivity. I don't think a blanket endorsement of, you know, you can act somewhere and not, and not, other, and not in other places is appropriate. I guess the last point before we open up to discussion is, of course, all of my comments have conceived of humanitarian intervention as the use of military force. And I do share with the lawyers the belief um, that that's the right way to conceive it. That if we, are not, if we are talking about actions of another kind that involve interference um, and humanitarian aid and humanitarian assistance, that I would call those humanitarian action. Um, I wouldn't call them humanitarian intervention. But there is certainly a school of thought which says that we should conceive of this um, more broadly. And I don't think you would be making a mistake if you did. But I, I sort of sit on the side of the political scientists and the lawyers who would restrict it to acts of military force. So. Is that enough? Do you want me to yeah, stop that's, there? That's yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, thank you very much. So um, I've thrown at a so bunch yeah. of controversial <laughs> things there. Um, so does anybody have any anything to say immediately? I mean, I think I, I would just pick up on maybe your last part specifically, mm -hmm. um, just because in terms of in terms of the historical perspective. Um, in a lot of cases, things that now, you know, look, looking back, look like military interventions, you know, started within empires, so are not mm -hmm. military interventions per in the se. classic sense yeah. of But if they involve the use of force, or not necessarily? Yeah, yeah, well, start out involving the use of force. And I guess that's the other thing, is that sort of, if, if an intervention starts out with the use of force, but then evolves into sort of other kinds of mm -hmm, humanitarian mm -hmm, action, mm -hmm. sort of, do they still fall under the, under the first definition, or does it then, do you change the definition when it becomes, you know, government involvement, or yeah, yeah. if it starts out in a, in a military way, because it's still, it's still yeah. I mean, linked I chose, to that intervention. Yeah, I mean, the, the follow-on actions in yeah. particular are very important here yeah. to think about. Um, and of course, they, they have now 
greatly affected the calculations of decision makers about whether to intervene. Mm -hmm. But I, I think you could accommodate your point, and I, and I, I agree with you that those cases within empires raise some thorny issues, but I think they do more for the issue of consent mm -hmm. than they would necessarily for the use of military means. I yeah. think you could still distinguish a category of action, say, in the, in the late 18th or 19th centuries where um, military means were used, mm -hmm. even if they were alongside other actions. Um, but you didn't have this phenomenon of the formal abrogation of consent because you weren't dealing with sovereign states. You were dealing with members of an empire. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be very interesting myself to draw out. Um, and you're right, there are some, there are some issues of, of membership. But there's also some interesting parallels mm -hmm. because, you know, the hazard of my trade is that we perhaps take sovereign equality too seriously. And that, in fact, you do have informal spheres of influence where you could say you have the phenomenon that you're describing in the 21st century or the late 20th century where you have soft sovereignty and more rampant intervention in certain areas that are, you know, I, if you think about Operation Turquoise, mm -hmm. an action by France and Rwanda, there is informal empire behind that. So there may be some interesting parallels that you can draw. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just adding to that point briefly, there's also, uh, as you see in the evolution of um, Iraq and Afghanistan strategies, uh, an increasing conflation between the uh, spectrums of economic development, stabilization, and coercive military force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Often, uh, I think there's a tendency to see this as a continuum in, in using the peace operations model you can uh, shift from peacekeeping to peace enforcement to peace building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but I think increasingly these are all happening at once, mm -hmm. and they all contribute to a cohesive military campaign. So you have, for instance, uh, combat operations in Afghanistan against the Taliban. You also have um, an intervention in Afghan agriculture to try to cut off um, uh, income lines. And so the idea that um, humanitarian intervention is as a self-contained unit, only military or solid. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just I feel it, and I feel that that's a trend which is going to be increasingly difficult yep. to disentangle. So it may begin, but it may evolve. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or indeed, it, it might even uh, uh, come at the planning and uh, planning stage before implementation. Yeah. As a three-pronged strategy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've called it. I should have. I should have done this just so you were clear that the the definition I use in my book is coercive interference mm -hmm. in the internal affairs of a state. And I say involving the use of armed force, but you might not want to, <laughs> with the purposes of addressing massive human rights violations or, pre or preventing widespread human suffering. And again, in brackets, it might not be the only purpose, right. but that's a dominant purpose. But you could, I mean, you could just talk about coercive interference mm -hmm. that may involve a spectrum of actions. Um, and, and I absolutely agree with you that these, these operations evolve. Mm -hmm. um, and one wants to concept, conceptualize that sure. and analyze that, yeah. Nina, did you want to? Um, well, I agree with you that one could um, support humanitarian intervention without the consent of the, the host state. But I think what we've seen in the cases that you're referring to is sort of a breakdown of the state and all the intervention happens at the moment. Yeah. 
Somalia that was actually a somewhat legitimate alternative um, government emerging, and they called for the intervention. So in that case, you could still say there is some sort of, there was a consent mechanism I yeah. think, that was yeah. paying attention to. And with Libya, I think through Sarkozy, um, sort of legitimizing the rebel government, mm -hmm. you also have some sort of consent mm -hmm. process. So I think in most of the cases that we've seen to date, we still have Other consideration, yeah. Economic motives behind it. I, 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 you would have to um, explain to me which one. I really don't, don't see any one where there isn't significant um, strategic, political, and economic interest in there. And on that level, I hesitate to call it humanitarian. So I think then we would have to, with our attempt at coming up with a definition, right? Where I mean, you said that sort of if the intent is purely humanitarian. No, I, I, what I was trying to say is if there is an intent to bring about a humanitarian outcome, mm -hmm. one can be less strict about saying there can only be a humanitarian motive, because my point was there will, along, along with what you're right. trying to say, there will rarely be solely a humanitarian motive. I mean, I think there is a slight danger of reading back into some of these cases, the strategic interest. I mean, I've, I've seen, a, I've done a lot of work on the decision making to actually intervene. And I think in the case of Somalia, I would want to argue quite strongly that the humanitarian rationale was the dominant motive. I mean, you can always say, yes, there was a, Clearly, this is strategically important for the United States. Um, so there must have been other considerations. And I don't deny that when one looks at the Horn of Africa today, one, one, but if you look at the actual period when the decision was made, it, de it depends on what kind of analysis you're doing. Do you want to, anal do you want to anal analyze what was motivating actual decisions, or how should we think about these interventions um, in terms of their, their broader purpose. And I agree with you, with each of these, if you want, I could find another interest. But actually, um, both, both my students and myself have done some pretty close analysis of decision making, where if you look at the arguments that float around. Now, arguments are obviously constructed, right? And you have. Um, you have different individuals and different elements of the bureaucracy that will be more or less driving the decision. But no, I can't sit here and say that it's a pure humanitarian motive, which is why I think if you want to insist on that, it's going to be very difficult to have a category of action called humanitarian intervention. You, should, you shouldn't use it. So then the question, because is it analytically to distinguish these interventions from others in any kind of way, 
And my argument is, yes, I think we can, by saying that their, their primary intent was to achieve a humanitarian outcome where there was either a massive violation of human rights or atrocities, or they were imminent. I mean, even in the case of Libya, yes, it has some strategic value. But I mean, 1% of the world's oil supply, clearly, if you were to ask where in Africa or the Middle East the U.S.'s strategic interests were most paramount, you wouldn't say Libya. Now, that isn't to say that events didn't create interests. I mean, there were all kinds of things, including domestic interests in France, motivating Sarkozy, right? But you can have a coincidence of those interests and humanitarian um, motives, and that's what explains why you get action in some cases and not in others. I wouldn't want to draw the conclusion we shouldn't call them humanitarian. To me, it's just more a case of where you can say, this is why we saw it. But I think the action in Libya was also heavily motivated by mea culpas. You know, we, we, were, we were on the back foot in Egypt. We were on the back foot in Tunisia. If we don't act here, how will that affect what's going on in the region? You're absolutely right that it's going to be extremely difficult to deny that those things are playing maybe a role. That's already, that, I mean, the Egyptians and Tunisians were successful by themselves. Maybe that was also a little um, discourse <coughs> that these countries actually can bring about change without us having our foot in yeah. the door. I also I think, as a, as a <laughs> footnote, the, the invitation of the Arab League, whether it was actually that strong or not, was actually very significant in the actual getting of the resolution. I think it's very likely China would have vetoed had, that, had there not been the perception that that invitation was present. Now, when you actually look at it now, some members of the Arab League weren't there. When the, you know, we could say how genuine was it. But the fact that it was there, given the crisis decision, meaning you had very little time, made it much more likely that a, that a country that would normally be very opposed to these kinds of actions and is very opposed over Syria, would say yes. Did you? I think that Jennifer's distinction between humanitarian action and humanitarian intervention uh, over the criteria of the use of force is a very useful one. And I think, I, I personally think that's a very, very important kind of distinction and one which we should continue to try to work towards, although I'm aware that there are others who might disagree. But I do want to kind of um, enforce Nina's point and to lead to a programmatic point uh, from there. Uh, it seems absolutely quite clear that there is no case of humanitarian intervention where there are not serious great power interests at stake. Uh, and if one thinks, one can look to borrow something from the language of my subject, uh, in imperial history we talk about what's called the official mind. And the official mind, the guys in the foreign office, when they're deciding what they're going to do with uh, Zanzibar or what they're going to do uh, with Egypt, um, they are never going to say, well, we need to control the sea route to India. Uh, and we need to make sure that, uh, that, that, that the British Empire is able to move commodities and troops quickly between these places. They will speak purely in terms of the issues that are specific to that occasion. <laughs> I think that when we look at humanitarian intervention today, we need to realize, too, that, there's, that the official mind is not necessarily going to be the most effective guide to the other kinds of interests that are at stake. And in the case of Somalia, uh, from the 1960s and 70s, the United States is in heated competition with the USSR in the Horn of Africa. Sometimes backing Somalia, sometimes backing Ethiopia, sometimes changing sides, backing Eritrea, then backing Ethiopia against Eritrea. Um, so this is a clear area of great power interest. And in the wake of the fall of the USSR, the United States wishes to assert itself as the principal power uh, in all theaters 
in the 1990s, and this, this seems to me is quite clearly part of the context mm. of that Somalian uh, intervention. As in the case of Libya, Libya here we have uh, uh, their domestic political reasons in France, why Sarkozy yeah. needed to have a little adventure. Um, uh, but I think it's also true to say that the command of uh, the Mediterranean and, the, and to have a Western military presence involved in Libya uh, provided a kind of anchor for uh, continued uh, Western dominance in the Mediterranean mm -hmm. region, which is viewed as a French strategic interest, um, in which France is viewed as the kind of effectively the, the proxy power of the West in, in, uh, in much of these regions. So there, there are substantial great power interests which we need to bring to mind. Anyway, these are purely anecdotal issues, but I want to lead to a more interesting um, procedural suggestion that I think that, that uh, if we were to try to produce something in this meeting which could inform discussions of global governance. It seems to me, uh, in the context of humanitarian intervention, we're always dealing with a context in which we are confronting powers that are structurally unequal in terms of the resources which they have, they have to bear. Yeah. And this, it seems to me, imposes on the international community uh, a set of responsibilities in terms of examining uh, each of these crises where they occur. And I think, first of all, the Security Council should have a, a practice where there is a, a declaration of interests, much as there is in decision-making uh, in private and public bodies uh, in the West. And we accept this as part of good corporate governance in civil society today. It should also be part of good corporate governance in international relations. And the great powers should declare their interests. It is important to know that Total Elfina may have other yeah. interests in, in, in Libya. Uh, it's important to know that, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, Various great powers have, have, have contracts in Iraq uh, prior to the fall of the Saddam Hussein regime or have interests in future world contracts. Uh, uh, these things do matter. And in some ways, there should be some rigorous procedure where, where great powers are asked to declare what are your interests and are interrogated in the Security Council about the structure of interests outside that surround humanitarian interventions. There should similarly be a declaration of means Great powers should not simply be granted the license to use force in territories. They should be asked to declare to the Security Council which means do you intend to use. And I think this is very significant in terms of not just the use of, of things like cluster bombs, uh, but in particular the use of depleted uranium munitions, which are now a standard part of all of the uh, great powers. Now, there remain uh, scientific debates about the extent to which depleted uranium represents uh, the kind of threat which some people fear that it does. But the fact that this issue even exists uh, as, a, as a matter of scientific controversy deserves to be discussed whenever these weapons are being used in the name of the international community. So declaration of interests, declaration of means, I think, are, are two mm -hmm. useful bits of procedure that should be part of international mm -hmm. practice. Yeah, and I would just add to that, in terms of this sort of mission creep, I guess, is the sort of, if there's going to be a declaration of means, maybe not just military means, but sort of, and what comes after, because I think a lot of that is sort of, a lot of, I mean, going to sort of Nina's point, and maybe being a um, skeptical imperial historian, but um, it, it strikes me that humanitarian stuck on the beginning of intervention tends to absolve um, powers of sort of responsibility after the fact. Um, so they, they do tend to outsource responsibility, as you say, to private contractors and that kind of thing, because we had a humanitarian intervention. We did not engage in a war, because a war gives you responsibility. A humanitarian intervention is a neat and clinical, as you point out, uh, intervention and, and removal. And, and just say one thing, and then uh, open it up. Um, it, there is, I think, a, a very strong 
uh, normative tendency in Western security uh, studies, Western security theory, and Western security thought to over uh, be over optimistic about just how technical and clinical Western force can be used to achieve ends. Um, so you have this culture of drone strikes, you which to the CNN watching audience is a precision strike. And this goes back to the rhetoric of the first Gulf War, being able to fly munitions down chimneys, which never was the case and never will be. So, chimneys in Iraq. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, gentlemen, I just want to say thank you very much for the overview. I thought it was a fantastic overview. Um, really good. Thank you. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't actually like the term of military intervention for reasons that I will come back to later. But, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, the key issue is the utility of the concept. I mean, if you can use it to do useful things, then why would you not, you know, why would you not want to use it? Um, you can define things in any way you want. You can, you can, mm -hmm. you can define things in, you can define things out. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I'm not... I'm not a refusenik in terms of engaging, engaging yeah. with the discussion. Um, and I, but I thought that the point you made, the really important point about how the historical context frames this, and how in the 19th century, you know, the issue was different, and therefore uh, lawyers used the, the term in a different way mm -hmm. to the way it is used in the 20th century. And you know, I think as I was suggesting, you know, in the 21st century. It'll move to something mm. different as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that is actually really, really important. I, I, the other thing I thought was interesting is that you you referenced the um, the, the kind of moral philosopher, um, and I have to say, having you know been a philosopher and a psychologist once in the distant past, I, I agree. I mean, you know, why the idea that mi mixed motives should be prevalent is um, is surprising. It's hard to gauge actually. I mean. Individuals and uh, institutions, actually Philip Bobbitt said this in his lecture last night, you know, always display mixed motives. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think that should surprise us, but I, I do think your distinction between motivation and intent is actually crucial. Um, because it helps you to sort of, it, 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 help, it allows you to acknowledge, you know, that we will all have different motivations, but there are still criteria against which we can assess yeah. um, actions. The only thing I would ask you, and this is my final point, is is to challenge you on what exactly is a humanitarian outcome, because you use the phrase humanitarian outcome, and you know that there are lots of in the papers for today. Again, yeah, a lot of people use the word humanitarian in different ways. I mean, I'm not sure if if um, humanitarian is something essentially about an intent and how it is translated into action consistent with that intent, yeah. how one can talk about a humanitarian outcome. And maybe maybe it would make this a lot easier if we just if we use slightly different language, we talk about a beneficial outcome. Yep. You know, beneficial outcome in terms of human rights, in terms yep. of human suffering. You then sort of you know you don't get you don't get hung up on the humanitarian bit. The human we should use the humanitarian term precisely in the way that you you've used mm. it to, to, to describe you know a particular intent. Um, which uh, is verifiable or not. Yeah. No, that's a very good suggestion, actually. It's not a great way of phrasing. And, I mean, it does, it does come back to Richard's point about means, which I really like, this idea. And, it's, and if you actually read the Chinese reasons for their abstention, 
over Libya. They're very, very much along the lines of Richard's point about means. They were raising concerns about how will this actually be done. And I, th I think if you if if there's a focus on intent, I mean, it depends what your objective is. If if your focus is along the lines Richard was suggesting about how these should be debated and governed, um, then a focus on intent, and if not humanitarian outcome, beneficial outcome, I think does provide grounds for very interesting scrutiny and monitoring. So, for example, the, you know, the discussion becomes, in, in the current case we're facing, what is it that will protect civilians? Um, if protection of civilians is the aim, which is what the resolution says, then that suggests certain things about means which should be off the table, but also the Sarkozy-Cameron-Obama statement, um, that is debatable. It's absolutely debatable as to whether you view the protection of civilians as requiring a different regime or whether, as the African Union is arguing, it's really about protection of civilians, which means ending armed conflict, ending violence. And so I think it invites you to have a conversation like that. I mean, again, if you look at, I think Somalia is very interesting here, the early intervention, and, and Richard knows the, back, the, the backdrop of the region, but part of what intent also gets one to focus on is short-term versus long-term outcomes. Um, and I think this needs to be made very apparent, and maybe it helps to address these issues of, you know, ongoing state building. Mm -hmm. You could argue, and you're going to be surprised that I say this, that the very initial stages of the Somali intervention were actually successful from a humanitarian perspective. If the goal was to avoid famine, to address famine, and that action achieved that, that that, as much as we can begin to say a beneficial outcome, better wording, may have been achieved. But, of course, in Western capitals, and I like Richard's phrase, the official mind, because I think that actually does count. You know, the official mind is that Somalia was a disaster, right? Failed intervention, and we know from decision-making records that it also influenced attitudes about Rwanda. It was an unmitigated disaster, and I'm not saying the subsequent actions in Somalia weren't, but it very much depends on how you define what the beneficial outcome is. S similarly in Kosovo, you might argue that, and some might argue that, uh, this was successful because it averted ethnic cleansing, although all the evidence shows that the majority of ethnic cleansing took place after the intervention began. And that you have to consider the long-term outcome. So I do think a focus on intent in a body like the Security Council or indeed in other decision-making fora, actually gets at the right sort of questions you should be asking. And if you don't, do not think through military means that you can achieve a beneficial outcome for populations, the questions that the Chinas and indeed the Germans were raising in the council, right, they abstained as well, um, are, are absolutely the right questions. I think at that point we're going to uh, move on to the next panel. Oh, right, we're, we're uh, over time, on time. But, uh, but thank you very much um, for, for getting us started. Um, and we can obviously come back to these questions all day. <laughs> so. Yeah, we're going to turn off.